You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. So it's probably weird or late to mention this now. 20 chapters in, 31 weeks into our study of the book of Revelation. But the book of Revelation is a tough book to interpret. There's, a, there's some difficulty with that, whether it's because it's written in a, in a dead style of apocalyptic literature, it's written just saturated in, in history, but also in secrecy and, and under the veil of threat from the emperor, and also it's prophecy from God. And so there are all these different textures and layers that make the book of Revelation very difficult to comprehend, understand, and interpret. But of the 6,000 reasons why this can be hard, one of the reasons why the book of Revelation is so difficult to understand is the timeline, the flow, the structure, and the perspective that shifts constantly throughout the book. And when you look at the systematic theology world, There's all these different isms that you could put yourself and pigeonhole yourself into when it comes to understanding and interpreting the book of Revelation. But one of the places where all of them have a difficulty is when the timeline seems to shift or the perspective changes and throws off the flow. And so if you look at the book of Revelation and say, this is a book where everything happens in the future, this is all future prophecy from God, then you run into passages of scripture that jump clearly into the time and place in which John is writing it and and create a very harsh stop to that. If you were to say that all of this is about things that happen directly in the life and the ministry and the time of John and the first century church, then clearly we see things that are, that are pointing towards the future. But even recognizing that even though there's historical illusions and ideas inside this book, they're often used to communicate something much deeper. But then if you say, okay, well, it's about nothing particularly real or historical or concrete, but these are all spiritual concepts and ideas, then we very clearly from start to finish see that John knows that he's writing to a real audience about real things. And the timeline seems to jump around a little bit and the perspective will change from heaven to earth, from spiritual to physical, and sometimes mixing the two together to the point where it's very difficult. But this isn't particularly uncommon, especially with the timeline in Hebrew literature in general. When you look at some of the narratives in the Old Testament, you'll find the author telling a big summary of the story and the things that happened, and then coming back and spending several chapters breaking down the details of everything that goes on. But often, or excuse me, also in light of prophecy throughout scripture, we see kind of a zoomed out picture where we see prophecy interacting with history. And Revelation takes both of those things and kind of cranks it up to 11, kind of puts it beyond the max of anything else that we see in scripture. But this is one of the most captivating and at times beautiful characteristics of the book of Revelation. We see John zooming in and zooming out, giving us a big picture of a big story in just a few verses or chapters, sometimes breaking things down in very explicit detail. Sometimes we see the perspective coming from heaven. Sometimes it's from earth. Sometimes we see it rooted in history. Sometimes we see him looking forward and it just moves back and forth, all intertwined to tell God's beautiful story of redemption. And so then we arrive at Revelation chapter 20. And while it would be easy to look at this as the beginning of the end to the book of Revelation, 
What Revelation 20 really serves as is both a summary of and a conclusion of God's story, leading to the incredible future of God's restoration of the world that we're going to see in chapters 21 and 22. And so this week and next week, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 20 and another picture of this big story. We saw it happen towards the middle of the book where John gives us this vision of the entirety of history leading up to Christ in in a short apocalyptic style. Now we're going to see him do the exact same thing, encapsulating all of church history into one chapter and showing us how God is bringing it all to an end to set the world back to the way that it should be. And so this week, we're going to look at the first 10 verses of Revelation chapter 20, and then we'll catch the remaining 7 through 15 next week. But John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or its image, or not received its mark on their head or their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for just your faithfulness and the reminder that you hold all things together. God, we thank you the things that seem like an eternity to us are just a moment to you. But even still, you are patient with us. You are kind to us. And you walk with us through it. And so God, as we think about this season that you've given us to walk after you and to follow after you, God, help us to be faithful with our time, diligent in our work, but also expectant for all that you're going to do beyond here and now. When you bring this season to a close, And bring us into the fullness of your glory and grace for all of eternity. And so, God, we ask all of these things and pray all of these things in the name of Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. So I remember being a kid and going to a friend's house to swim. So we didn't have a pool, so we went to a friend's house to swim. And one of the things that, that just brought us the most joy was to see how long we could hold our breath. And so you would take a deep breath. (gasps) I got to be careful taking deep breaths. I got this whole upper respiratory thing and I don't want to be hacking and coughing all over you for the rest of the time. But so we'll just pretend I'm taking a deep breath. And then you hold your mouth, you go under under the water and you hold your breath for as long as you can, right? 
and you go and you go and you go and then you break the plane of the water. You come up, take that deep breath. You're wiping your eyes off. You look at your friend. You say, how long was that? Like what? Four, five minutes? And your friend goes, 17 seconds. <laughs> you go, oh, I thought it was better than that. And as adults, I've seen, I love watching videos of people doing like cold therapy and cold water immersion. It's just a really funny, I don't know why it gives me so much joy, but it does. And so you see these, these athletes that are doing this crazy ultra, all this stuff, and they take their bodies so very seriously. And so one of the things they do is they go into a tub of ice and they just hang out there for a while. And there's this one guy that I follow on social media that puts people through this for the first time. And you see people get in the tub and then there's that moment of horror, like, what have I done? And they get in and they're just trying to control their breathing. They're trying not to panic. It's just, (sighs) and then they get out and it's like they're six-year-old boys in a swimming pool. How long was it? Was it like seven, eight, nine minutes? And uh, it was like a minute and 30 seconds. And it's weird when we're doing something that requires that kind of endurance, especially when it's something unpleasant and something that requires a lot of high intensity physically, where time has the ability to to almost stand still. It feels like you're there forever, even if it's just a matter of moments. And so we know that time can at least feel very relative, even though it's a very structured thing and we know that everything moves at the same speed, time can feel very relative to us depending on what's going on. And as we've seen all through the book of Revelation, time is, is somewhat relative. We've seen not only in the book of Revelation, but elsewhere throughout scripture, this, this importance of numerology, especially when it comes to time. We've seen phrases like three and a half years describe very long periods of time, time, times, and half a time. We've seen John at the very beginning of this book say, here are the things that must soon take place, knowing that they've now spread over the course of a couple thousand years. And so using this idea of time is very important in the book of Revelation to help us understand the immensity and the magnitude, but also the temporal nature of all the things that are taking place. Now, It's important to stop here. I haven't had to do one of these in a while, but this is kind of an interpretation disclaimer. So when you get to Revelation chapter 20, this is one of the places where you start hearing a lot of isms. And so if you've either spent time in a systematic theology class in Bible college or around anyone who has, then you've probably heard a lot of the big isms and a lot of the big words that go along with Revelation chapter 20 and the millennial kingdom of Christ. And so it's impossible not to teach this passage of scripture without a particular persuasion or, or bent to it. And so while I'm not going to use any of the particular isms or the big words that go along with these interpretations, I will say that I am very clearly coming from a position that I think is, is most faithful to the text from everything that I can understand. And when I look at this passage in light of not only the rest of the book of Revelation, but of all of scripture, What we're seeing here is not a prophecy of some sort of future millennial kingdom that either Jesus establishes when he returns or sometime after that, where it's an actual physical historical thousand years that are going to be going on. But instead, what we see here is a picture of the entire history of the church as Jesus is reigning through the ministry of the church as the kingdom of God. But don't take my word for it. Let's go to Jesus, because when we're talking about the kingdom of God, it's important to go back to Jesus and see what he teaches us about the kingdom instead of forcing kind of our opinions here on Revelation chapter 20. 
So when Jesus comes into the scene, the very first thing that he does is he starts to preach. And the words that he preaches, the message that he preaches is very simple, saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of God is near. Repent for the kingdom of God is here. When challenged with questions about the kingdom, he says, don't look around saying, is it here? Is it there? Because the kingdom of God is in your midst. We looked last week at the story of Jesus standing before Pilate. And as Pilate was questioning his kingdom, Jesus says, no, you're right. I am a king, active and reigning, but my kingdom is not of this world. And so as Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God and what that means and what that looks like, a couple things are clear. He seemed to communicate very clearly that the kingdom of God came into the world, that God sent his kingdom into the world through Christ at his first coming. That when Jesus was preaching, he wasn't saying, hey, repent, because one day somewhere way far down the road, thousands of years from now, a kingdom is going to come and reign for a thousand years. No, Jesus says you need to repent now because the kingdom is here and the kingdom is now. But there's other parts of scripture or parts of this chapter that are difficult to interpret without coming to Christ. Think about the first two verses. It says, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years and threw it in a pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So we say, well, how does that fit into all this? How does that fit into to this being a description of what's going on right here and right now from Christ's death and resurrection all the way till his return and all those years that pass in between? Well, think about Jesus again. Remember, and we've discussed this in the book of Revelation, but remember when Jesus sent out the disciples to go on, on their first mission of preaching and ministering for Christ. He sent them out with the same message that he began. He says, go out and preach about the kingdom of God. And so they did. They went out and they preached about the truthful reality of the kingdom of God. And when they came back to report all the things that they had saw and all the things that they had done, Jesus greeted them not with a congratulations, but with something so much greater by looking at these disciples and saying, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And so we see the message of the kingdom going out and conquering the enemy in his domain. But then Jesus goes even further. Another passage, another story that we've already talked about through this book. But there's a moment where these people come to Jesus and they accuse him of, of being in cahoots with Satan. And as he did, he always turned that on its head. But he looked at these people and he says, no, 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 no. There was a strong man living in this house and the only way to get rid of him is for someone stronger to come in. And Jesus says, that's what I did. I came in and the one who was the Lord of this world, who was reigning and deceiving the nations, I walked into his crib and I took his power away. I bound him up. And so what we see here in Revelation chapter 20 is an apocalyptic telling of what Jesus has already told us to be true that the kingdom of God is active and present in our world and that the king of kings and lord of lords has come in and taken his enemy and bound him up tight so that the message of the kingdom of God can continue onward. But there's also evidence here inside the text that help us to realize that Revelation chapter 20 is speaking about a present reality. 
Let's look at verses four through the end there. It says, then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God and who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And so here we have this picture of those who we've already identified in this text, of those who would follow Jesus, who reject the power and the allure of the kingdoms of the world and the enemies of Christ and follow after Jesus. We've already seen the language that we become a kingdom of priests when we follow after Jesus, echoing the same language that's here in Revelation chapter 20. But think about what Paul says in Ephesians, that we are dead in our sins and trespasses, but thanks be to God who has made us alive according to his riches and mercy in Christ Jesus. And so Paul believed that because of our sin, that we are all dead inside, not just fallen, not just broken, but we are spiritually dead without Christ. But what happens when we trust in Jesus is not simply a transaction, even though we are forgiven. It's not just a payment of our debt. It's not just a promise for eternity. It's not just a hope for a future, although that is absolutely part of it. But Paul believes that when someone puts their faith and their hope in Jesus, we not only go from being sinners to saints, not only going from being enemies of God to a kingdom of priests, but we go from being dead to being alive. The first resurrection that we experience is salvation. And so what we see here is the picture of all those who would follow after Christ and trust in him, living and reigning with Jesus in the world here and now. And again, that number a thousand, we see it pop up throughout the book of Revelation, but also throughout scripture, where we see the language that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I don't know how many hills are in the world. I'm assuming it's more than a thousand. If you would like an interesting fact about this building, I found out that this point is the second highest point in all of Walton County behind only Alcove Mountain. So there are at least two hills in the world because I know of those two, but I'm assuming there are a lot more, probably a lot more than a thousand and a lot more cattle that go on those hills. But we see this beautiful poetic language teaching us that God owns everything. And again, we've already seen that a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. And these aren't hard line. This isn't the currency of how time has changed from deity to us, but this is just showing us a picture of something very small and something very large to help us grasp the concept that God is beyond space and time. And so because John doesn't know the exact time or day, because Jesus told us that only God knows the time or day that he'll return to make everything right and everything new. John says, we got a, we got a thousand years. We got a really long time, but this is the time that we've been given to reign with Christ for the kingdom of God and to share the good news of the gospel. And so what we have here is a summary of Christ's church from his resurrection to his return. And we have a reminder of the hope and the power 
that we have reigning with Christ for these thousand years, for this large expanse of time that God has chosen to give us to be able to do the work of the gospel. And so what do we learn here? What's the, what's the practical application for something that feels very symbolic and something very ideological? Well, I think the first thing, and we've seen this through the book of Revelation, is that our suffering and our life in and through this very broken world may seem like forever. We feel a lot of times like little kids holding our breath in the water. And the, just, we see that all through the Bible. Those how long questions that we've referenced over and over and over again. That's the people of God just coming out of the water saying, how long was it? Is it time yet? Is it time for you to restore your kingdom? Is it time for you to restore your people? Isn't it time yet, God? It feels like we've been suffering for so very long. And it is a very long time, but not compared to eternity. And so while we may feel like we're in this broken world forever, we are reminded that this time, even though it's so great, is very short in light of eternity. And this is the mindset that the Apostle Paul carried each and every day of his life and ministry. Where Paul, oh my goodness, suffered things far beyond what I could possibly ever imagine suffering for the gospel. And yet he was able to look at all of his sufferings and say, no, these are so small. Even if I suffer my whole life, this is so small compared to the eternity I have in knowing Jesus Christ. And that's how he was able to say, you know what? To live is Christ and to die is gain. Because there was no fear because he knew that the hope that he had in Jesus was so much greater than anything that could come in this world. But even though we know that there's an end date to all this, it's still hard. And even though a thousand years is like a day to God, it's not to us. And our lives don't feel like a mist. They don't feel like a vapor in the wind, especially when we're hurting, especially when we're suffering, especially if we're having to endure something for the cause of Christ and the sake of the gospel. And yet God doesn't treat us with disdain for that. He doesn't look at us and say, just, just deal with it. Just endure. Just, just be faithful through this because it's a very small time. No, in fact, he walks with us through it. And I love the language here of, of the union with Christ and his church. It says they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That Jesus is here walking with us and for us, just like God was leading his people through the wilderness to the promised land and fighting their battles on their behalf. We have this promise that Jesus will never leave us or forsake us, but he walks each moment with us every single day on the days when it feels like life is just breathing by and on the days when it feels like it's never going to end. Christ is there with us through every step. And so we get a, a picture of both the temporal nature of the work that we have, but also the fact that we don't do it alone. We also see here that our enemy is weakened. Though he's still active and, and present, he's weakened. You see, sometimes we have this fear, or maybe it just helps us to justify not working as diligently as we should for the kingdom of God. But we like to throw out the word enemy a lot to justify why we're not doing what we should. Oh, the enemy's just been really heavy. 
The enemy's just been really going against me. The enemy is just really slowing me down and holding me back. But we have this reminder, not only in the gospels coming from the mouths of Christ, but here in Revelation chapter 20, that through his death and resurrection, Jesus has snatched away the power of our enemy and made it possible that even though it's hard and even though we still have opposition from every side, that we can do the gospel work that he's been given us with freedom, but not only with freedom, but with power. Because while Jesus has bound our enemy, he strengthened us. And so we have no reason to fear. We have no reason to give excuses for not doing what we're called to do because we are called here reigning with Christ as priests filled with power and blessed by God to continue to do the work that God has called us to do. We also see here that we're alive. And there's so many times when you can walk through the doors of a church and it feels like you're walking into a funeral. A bunch of people broken and disheartened, people apathetic or grumpy. Or sometimes we just try to fix that by putting on a show that if we can be as emotionally charged as we can, and if we can create an environment that feels like life, then maybe we don't have to recognize that we're not really living as Christ has called us to live. But here in this passage of scripture, it says that anyone who has not taken the mark of the beast on their foreheads or their hands, anyone who has rejected the enemies of God and put their faith and their hope in Christ, we have come to life. And again, Paul says that it's not just that we become better people. It's not just that we're forgiven. It's not just that we have this promise of eternity, but he says that we are made new and we are made alive in Christ. And so Christians of all people should live our lives like we're alive. It doesn't mean that we're always just overwhelmingly happy. It doesn't mean that we don't deal with sadness or pain or sorrow. It doesn't mean there might be times when we feel just brought so very low. But even in our darkest moments, even in our most hopeless moments, we are reminded that Christ died so that we could live and that we've been given freedom through Jesus. And that should permeate everything that we do. Our joy doesn't have to be manufactured because we find our joy in the strength and the hope of Jesus. And when we mourn, we don't mourn like those who have no hope because yes, we have the promise of eternal life, but Jesus says that he has died and rose again to give us abundant life now so that we have all the strength and vigor that we need to live with reckless abandon, to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. So we need to live like we're alive. But we also see here the repetition that we are a kingdom of priests. That language is, is so intentional in this book. It says, over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And we see Jesus take the, offer, the office of prophet and priest and king. And he shares with us the responsibility to be a prophetic voice in the world and to be proclaimers of the gospel with every breath that we have to teach about the goodness and the grace of Jesus Christ. That we've been given the ability to reign with Christ over sin and brokenness and death so that we can live in freedom. And also we are called to be priests doing the work of Jesus with our hands and with our mouths, loving and caring for those who are in need, minister to those who are hurting and carrying out the mission of the kingdom of God, seeing the church grow and reign. 
And this reminds us that we have work to do. And again, there are so many things that we can say that can justify what we're doing or what we're not doing. And it can be easy right now. And we have to ask ourselves as a church, we don't have a building. We're meeting in a weird spot for a few weeks. We don't know where we're going to go. And so maybe like this is just God giving us a break. Maybe we can just take some time off from loving and serving our community. Maybe we can just take some time off from sharing the gospel because how much room do we really have to grow while we're here? And do I really want to invite somebody to come to church if they're going to have to come and park somewhere weird and walk up a hill and it's going to be a little clunky and awkward? And do we really want to do ministry if we don't have a place where we can say, this is where we're meeting and come visit us and join us? No, we have to say no matter where God leads us, No matter where he puts us, he has made us alive in Christ and he has given us the call as ministers of the gospel, as priests of the gospel to do that work wherever we find ourselves individually and as a church. This passage is about us. It is a very short summary of a very long history of men and women and boys and girls following after Christ. And God is writing the details of this passage through our lives. What's your passage going to say? What's my passage going to say? Is one day, as we're going to see next week, we stand before God, our just and righteous judge, and he unrolls the book of our life, and he starts filling in the details of what Revelation chapter 20 looks like. And when he focuses on the Chris Dill story, Am I going to fill those pages up with tireless work for the gospel and affection for Christ and love for my neighbors? Or am I going to stand up in front of him and say, well, I didn't feel really good some of those weeks. My church didn't have a building. I was kind of sad. And things were going on in my life. And here's my excuse. And here's my excuse. And here's my excuse. I hope with everything inside of me that I'll be able to stand before God and give an account for the way that I used my life and the way that I used my small portion of this long period of time to bring him glory and honor and praise. I hope that when we stand there together and he looks at the ministry of Redeeming Grace Community Church, that there was nothing that stood in our way, that we lived boldly for Christ, that we knew that our enemy was weak and that there is nothing that could stop us. And even if this world kills us and takes our lives away, that our deaths will echo the goodness of the gospel. And that we realized that Christ walked with us through every step and so we had nothing to fear and no reason to stand back. But we constantly move forward in the rhythms of God's grace, loving him with all we had and loving our neighbor as ourselves and that there would be an echo throughout heaven of the lives who were affected, changed and brought to Christ through the ministry of our church. And so let's fill in these details with beautiful stories of redemption and salvation as God works and reigns through each of us individually as Redeeming Grace Community Church, and as the church all over the world. Let's pray. Father God, I don't know what my story says to this point. I know there would be lines and pages of it that are faithful and active for the gospel. 
And I know there are plenty that would be blank. Because of the times when I've made excuses, the times when I haven't cared, God, the times when I've outright rebelled and disobeyed. But God, I thank you that your mercies are new every morning and that salvation is not a fleeting gift, but that each and every day you sanctify us, you shape us in the gospel. And so God, I pray that each, each day, each page that we turn would be an opportunity that we don't let fall away. God, that we would be reminded that you have already won the battle. You've already claimed the victory. You've bound your enemy and nothing can stand against you and your church. So Father, give us the boldness to live like we're alive, to live lives of joy and hope and peace, even in the midst of the most difficult circumstances. God, help us to live in victory. But God, help us to live as a kingdom of priests, each and every member of your church, a minister of the gospel, always working, always faithfully loving and worshiping you. And as you fill us up, going out and loving and caring for those that you've placed in our lives. And God, I just pray that when the story of our lives is ended, when the story of our church has ended, when the story of your church comes to a close and you bring us in to eternity, God, that our pages would be filled and the halls of heaven would echo with the sounds of redemption and salvation. God, we ask all these things in Jesus' name because we need his help. Amen.